Well, good morning, folks. Hey, glad you're all here. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and grab them at this point in time and turn with me to the Gospel of John. So you got Matthew, you got Mark, you got Luke, and you got John in your New Testament. If you're using a pew Bible like I have up here, it's on page 875, John chapter 15. John 15 is where we are going to be the first, oh, eight verses or so in the Gospel of John. We are continuing on in our sermon series simply entitled Text learning all about the Bible, and our question this morning is uh, really part three of the same question. What does the Bible do for us? What does the Bible do in our life? What does God intend for our reading and studying and living out of the Bible to do in our life? Today we're going to find out that uh, the Bible spawns spiritual fruit. It spawns spiritual fruit. John 15, I trust you're there. Let's pray and we'll dive right in. Father, thank you for the morning. Thank you that we can, uh, in particular, this Christmas season, pause and think about the person and work of your son, Jesus. It is indeed a special time of year. We, um, We ponder the incarnation. It is truly incredible. It is beyond our imagination that he who is infinite would uh, humble himself, taking on finite human flesh, uh, becoming uh, like us to save us from our sins. It is an incredible thing, and we are so very grateful for that gift of your son and his life and his death and his burial and his resurrection. And not only that, but we're very grateful that we have the record of his life and of his words and of the words, all of your words, both Old Testament and New Testament, that point to him, that point us towards this baby in a manger, that we might personally believe and have faith, be born again, and have eternal life. Father, your desire is not only our salvation, but you desire that we be productive people, that we be productive Christians, that we bear spiritual fruit for you. And so we ask that you would help us this morning as we look at the words of our Master and Savior Jesus as to just how we can do that. We pray it in the name of Jesus. And all together, God's people said, Amen. Well, three years ago, um, my wife and I ex- started a, a bit of a, an experiment for us, and uh, that experiment was to plant a garden. I had never planted a garden before, uh, as far as I know. My wife had never planted a garden before. We are not what you call green thumbs. In fact, most of the time, if we get anything alive that's green, it ends up dying after a short period of time. But we thought, oh, we'll save a bit of money, you know, we'll do this whole fresh garden thing. Our next door neighbor, Heather Morkel, does such a great job on her garden, and we're like, we're going we're gonna to try to do that. And so as novice gardener, gardeners, um, we really didn't have a clue. We didn't have a clue what we were doing, and we made several key mistakes. Uh, first of all, we planted our garden in the wrong place. Um, this is probably the, the biggest mistake that we made. Um, we have two rather large trees in our backyard, and uh, we were trying to kind of position the garden in the most convenient place for us, that we could still use the space in the backyard for playing with the kids and a uh, variety of things. And uh, we thought, well, it'll probably get enough sun right here. Well, it didn't. We kind of planted it in a place where it was pretty shady most of the time instead of the one place in our yard that actually gets sun. Well, that was kind of mistake number one. And and, and more than that, we didn't really, let's just say we weren't very good gardeners, okay? We didn't really weed it all that often. Every now and then we kind of get the hoe and get the, you know, get the gloves on and kind of do some weeding. But for the most of the time, the weeds had room to grow. And they kind of did their own thing. And every now and then we would water it. I've been told that to grow plants you need water. Um, We did that periodically, you know, kind of as we remembered. But 
as a result, shocker of shockers, our garden just wasn't very fruitful. It wasn't very productive. In fact, we would look at the vegetables in our garden, and we would go two doors down and look at the vegetables in Heather, Heather's garden, and they were like three to four times larger than the vegetables in our garden. And it took us three years to figure out we did something wrong. This is not how the garden is supposed to be. You know, we had cauliflowers that were like the size of a, a, a quarter, or like, you know, a, a, a silver dollar, and Heather's were huge. And I'm like, honey, something's just not right here. We, we kind of made a mistake. And so uh, the long and short of the story is that the three-year experiment is over uh, for now. It's over, I think, for now. I don't think we're going to be doing a garden next year. We are not very good gardeners. Well, friends, uh, God has planted a garden. God has planted a garden as well. A vineyard, to be exact, according to the words and the analogy of Jesus in John chapter 15. In that garden, his garden, God the Father's garden, consists of genuine Christians, of genuine believers. And he, as its master gardener, like any gardener, wants it to be fruitful, wants it to be productive. That is the point of a garden, is it not? That it be fruitful and that it would be productive. Unlike me as a gardener, God the Father has given his garden everything that it needs, everything that we need to be fruitful and to be productive. He has given it, so to speak, good soil, good sunlight, good care, and he expects from his garden from those of us who are born again, he expects fruitfulness and he expects productivity from his spiritual garden. And so really two questions come to the forefront. Number one, will we be fruitful as his garden? And number two, how can we be fruitful? Will we be fruitful as his garden and how can we be fruitful as his garden? Well, today we see yet another thing that the Bible does in our life. The Bible spawns spiritual fruit. Let's turn to our text today in John 15, and let's read our text together. John 15, 1 through 8. These are the words of Jesus. It's the night uh, before uh, of his betrayal. It is the, uh, the night of his arrest. And so he is spending an intimate time with his disciples. Uh, Judas has gone to betray him. And he is left there in the upper room with his faithful 11. And he speaks to them and he speaks to us about being fruitful as a Christian. Let's read these words together, starting in John 15, verse 1. He says this, I am the true vine, and my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit. While every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes so that it will be even more productive. You are already clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Remain in me as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If you do not remain in me, you are like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up 
thrown into the fire and burned. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. And this is a reading of God's holy word. And so here's where we're going to go this morning. First of all, I want us to look at the analogy. I want us to look at this word picture that Jesus gives us in verses 1 and 2, the analogy. And then we're going to look at the application. Because in verses 3 through 8, what we see Jesus do is he uses this analogy that he's introduced in verses 1 and, uh, introduced in 1 and 2, and he applies it both to his original disciples and to, to me and you today. So we'll look at the analogy, we'll look at the application, and, and then third, we'll take a broader look at the, the Christian's fruit basket. What other types of fruit should we be bearing as Christians? So let's jump again into the text with the analogy. Jesus begins his analogy in verses 1 and 2 by identifying the cast of characters, right? He's using a picture, and in no uncertain terms, he identifies who is who, right? He begins by identifying the cast of characters. Notice, I am the true vine, he says, and my father... My father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. So let's let's identify the cast of characters in this analogy, shall we? In this analogy, Jesus very clearly is the vine. More specifically, he likens himself to a grapevine. Jesus is the grapevine. His father is the what? The gardener, right? His father is the gardener. And then, who are the disciples? The disciples in this instance are the branches that are connected to the vine, right? The branches that are connected to the grapevine. So we have a, a cast of characters. We have the vine, Jesus. We have the gardener, the father. And we have branches, disciples, right? Now notice, Two types of branches or two types of disciples, followers, are introduced, right? And it's very clear. The first branches are the branches that don't bear any fruit, right? And the second set of branches are those that clearly do produce fruit, and as a result, they are pruned. So there are two types of branches here, two types of disciples, fruitful ones and unfruitful ones. Now notice the work of the gardener, right? Notice the work of the gardener who is God the Father. He cuts off, according to verse 2, he cuts off every branch that bears no fruit. So there are branches that are fruitless. And Jesus says, according to his image, the master gardener cuts them off, removes them from the vine. However, there are other branches, right? And the other branches are fruitful And what does the master gardener do? What does the master gardener do to the branches that are bearing fruit? Well, according to Jesus' imagery and words, he prunes them. He literally cleans them. He prunes them to what end? So that they will be even more fruitful. Now, let's keep these words in context. Because what is happening on this very night? What is happening in this very moment There are 11 there with him, and he had 12 with him for his three years in ministry. 
11 are there bearing fruit, and one is not there, not bearing fruit. Because at that very moment, Judas Iscariot is on the way to meet with the religious leaders to betray Jesus, to hand Jesus over for money. He is doing that. And so very clearly, I think, this type of branch that is likened to Judas, the type of branch that bears no fruit, Jesus says that this type of branch will be cut off. Now, Palestinian gardeners of that day would mercilessly cut off the branches on the vine that were bearing no fruit. They were a drain to the vine. And so the gardeners in that day would mercilessly cut off those branches, dry them off, and they would pile them and burn them because that type of wood was utterly useless. You couldn't use it for anything else. And so they would end up, according to this analogy, being burned up in the fire. But what happened? What happened to the branches that were bearing fruit? Certainly these fruit-bearing branches are the 11 disciples. They are true believers. Though not always faithful to him, they would remain faithful to him towards the end. They would follow him. And so these branches, the 11 disciples, what happens to them, right? Jesus says that they are pruned. This describes the purging or the cleansing of the branch to maximize their fruitfulness. And what we know is that branches in that day, young vines for their first three years, were uh, pruned rather harshly uh, for three years. And then once they were mature and they were really bearing fruit, they were pruned biannually in December and in January. And so the analogy is set, right? There are professing disciples like Judas who ultimately bear no fruit. And there are genuine disciples like the 11 who do bear fruit and undergo a pruning process so that they will be even more fruitful. So Jesus has set the analogy. Let's see him apply that analogy in verses 3 through 8. First of all, first of all in verse 3, he assures the 11 disciples and those of us, you and I, who today faithfully follow Jesus, place our faith in Jesus, are born again. He assures them and he assures us that we, in one sense, are already pruned. That we, in one sense, are already pruned. That is, that we have been made clean. We have been forgiven of our sins. Notice what he says in verse 3 as he applies the analogy. He says, you, you, faithful 11, you are already clean because of, notice, because of the word. You are already clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Now, the word here in verse 3, translated clean, Jesus says you are already clean, is this very same word that Jesus used back in verses 1 and 2 that is translated pruning. Literally, Jesus says you are already pruned. I've already pruned you. Now, notice the image. They're bearing fruit. God the Father will prune them so that they will bear more fruit, but Jesus uses a play on words. He says, in a sense, you are already pruned. You are already made clean by the word that I have spoken to you. It's a play on words. He says, listen, guys, 
the branches that the Father is going to prune, I have already pruned, I have already made clean by the word of the gospel that I have spoken to you that you have accepted. He speaks then of their initial salvation. He speaks of our initial salvation and the spiritual cleansing, the spiritual pruning, if you will, of our sins that comes through the word of Christ. And so friends, this is where the Christian life begins. This is where the Christian life starts, with personal trust in Jesus alone for the forgiveness of your sins to make you clean, to make you clean. So I want to ask you this Christmas season, have you experienced the cleansing work of Jesus Christ in your life? Have you, you personally, been pruned of your sins, been made clean by the blood of Jesus through personal faith. Have you taken this initial step to become a Christian? If not, I will at the end of our time together invite you to do that with me. And if you do, then Jesus can say to you, you are already clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. So after verse 3, starting in verse 4, next, Jesus tells his disciples, those who have been made clean, They've received forgiveness of sins through faith. He tells them and he tells us how we can be the most fruitful, the most fruitful branches that we can be. Let me ask you this. If you are a Christian today, do you want to be fruitful? Do you want to be productive for God? I hope that you say yes. I say yes. So how can we do that? Well, he tells us in verses 4 and 5. Let's read it together. Jesus says, Remain in me. Your translation may say abide. Abide in me. Remain in me. As I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you may be. What? What does it say? Might? You will. You will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do what, church? Nothing. You can do nothing. So here in verses 4 and 5, Jesus applies this imagery. He takes the image of a branch that is connected to a grapevine and likens our relationship to him, to Jesus, to that. He says, just as a branch cannot produce grapes, if it's not connected to the fruit-producing power of the vine, Jesus says, so we must stay connected to him. We must stay connected to him in a vital and a close relationship if we want to be productive. If we want to be productive Christians and bear spiritual fruit, right? We must stay as close to him as the branch stays to the vine, right? We must have this kind of of connection. Notice he reiterates our inability to be productive on our own power. Christians, this is a necessary word for us. We can't just muster up spiritual fruit, right? We have to abide in him. He says, apart from me, you can do nothing. I think Jesus has an idea of our penchant for self-reliance, right? I I ran ran across this prayer, and I think it illustrates it uh, really well. There was a Christian And he prayed this prayer. He said, Dear God, dear God, so far today, I've really done all right. I haven't gossiped. 
I haven't lost my temper or been greedy. I haven't been grumpy or nasty or selfish or overindulgent. But in a few minutes, Lord, dear Lord, in a few minutes, I'm going to get out of bed. And from then on, I'm going to need a lot more help. Amen. I don't know about you, but uh, many, many mornings before I get out of bed, I've been these things, right? We need help. We can't do it on our own. We must stay vitally connected to Jesus. So after, in verse 6, in verse 6, he reiterates the fate of mere professing fruitless Christians. After he does that in verse 6, in verses 7 and 8, Jesus further explains how we can remain in him. He's told us, abide in me, stay close to me. Well, how do we do that? He's going to tell us, specifically in verses 7 and 8, he's not only going to explain how we can remain in him, but he's going to give us one example of the spiritual fruit that he wants us to bear. So let's read together, starting in verse 6. If you do not remain in me, you are like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire, and burned. Verse 7. If you remain in me, and notice this, and my words, and my words remain in you. Ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. This is to my Father's glory that you bear much much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. So friends, let me ask you a question from this text. How are we to remain in Jesus and bear fruit? What, how does he further explain what abiding or remaining in him looks like? He says, if you remain in me and my what? Words. And my words remain in you. So part of abiding in a relationship with Jesus is allowing his word to abide in us, right? And that's how we pursue him in a close relationship. Now, what happens? What is one of the fruits that Jesus mentions when we remain in him and his word abides in us? What is one fruit that we can expect? Well, notice the answer. Ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. Answered prayer. Here Jesus identifies the first spiritual fruit that should be growing in our personal fruit basket. And it is the fruit of answered prayer. Answered prayer. Now, unlike those who wish to take this verse and use it as a a blank prayer check, right? A blank prayer check. Jesus is teaching that when we are so influenced by his word that we allow it to guide our prayers, that our prayer, that we pray according to God's will. We pray according to his will, and thus our prayers are going to be answered. In 1 John 5, you don't have to turn there, but it's interesting. In 1 John 5, 14 and 15, this very same John, who writes these words of Jesus, wrote this epistle. And he explains this. He says this, This is the confidence we have in approaching God in prayer. John says that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have what we ask of him. So here's the point, my friends. Here's the point. If we want to be productive for God as his spiritual branches, we need to remain in a close relationship with Jesus through his word. And while here Jesus mentions one fruit that we should be producing, answer prayer, the New Testament actually gives us several more. So here's how we're going to close. I want us to look at the Christian's fruit basket. What should be accumulating over 
the days and years of our life. What kind of fruit does God expect from us? We should know because it's clear that he expects fruit from us as Christians. Well, what, what does he expect if we abide in Jesus and allow his word to abide in us? Let's take a look at the spiritual fruit basket. But before we do that, I want to give a quick word of warning. I think sometimes we can have a false idea. We can have a misunderstanding of the kind of fruit that God is expecting from us. Uh, I don't know if you've ever seen this. Maybe you have it in your home. But uh, on occasion, people think it nice to decorate their house with fruit. And instead of putting mangoes and bananas and apples that get uh, dingy and dirty and old, what do they, what do they use? Plastic fruit, right? You know what I'm talking about. Plastic fruit. It looks like an apple, but it's not an apple, right? The, it was a little while ago, and I don't even remember the context, but we were somewhere, and daughter number two, Sawyer, she's about two and a half. We were there, and, and there, were, there was a bowl of this plastic fruit on the table or sitting out. I don't know where we were. And I just remember she, she saw it, and she said, Apple! And she, and before I could stop her, she toddled over there and she grabbed the apple and she took a big bite. And boy, was she surprised because it didn't taste like an apple. Because it wasn't. It was fake. And I just remember her giving me this look like, Daddy, what is happening? You know, it is an apple, but it's not an apple, right? There is fake fruit. Friends, there is a fake fruit out there uh, for you and I too. John MacArthur identifies three of them, and I'll run through them rather quickly. Number one, the fake fruit of success. Success. He says this, Nowhere in the Bible is fruit synonymous with success. We all have a tendency to think that if something is big, or if people are coming, that means it's bearing fruit. He says, not necessarily so. Not only success, but he says sensationalism. And I quote, We also tend to be impressed with the flashy, spectacular, or overzealous. The emotional pitch and the ringing rhetoric all promise. Here is fruit. But talk is cheap. Real spiritual fruit, he says, is expensive. And then there's the third kind. It's simulation. Simulation. He says a subtle trap that ensnares many Christians, is when we try to emulate the actions or style of other Christians. He says, but all Christians bear their own fruit. They are unique, and so is their fruit. So in our time remaining, what kind of fruit should be in our spiritual fruit basket? Let's go through these rather quickly. I find seven things in the New Testament, seven things that God says that if we abide in Jesus and if we allow his word to abide in us, that these are the fruits that are going to be growing in our life. Number one, number one, uh, repentance, repentance. We we see this in Matthew 3, 8. John the Baptist tells the Pharisees who are coming to be baptized, he says, produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And so when we as Christians have a repentant heart, when we come to realize that we have sinned against God or against other people or against his word, we have a repentant heart. We agree with God. Yes, this is wrong and I have grieved you and I have hurt other people. And so friends, is repentance a fruit that's growing in your spiritual life? Or when you are encountered with the truth, do you deny it and clam up and reject 
that repentance. Number two, uh, good works. We see this in numerous places, places but Colossians 1.10 is very clear. That good works, it's, it's a generic term for actions that we do that are helpful or beneficial to other people. It's an outward-oriented word. Notice, Paul prays this for the Colossian church, so that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please him in, everywhere, in every way. Notice, bearing fruit. Bearing fruit in every what? Good work. Growing in the knowledge of God. And so our lives should be increasingly characterized by the needs and desires and wants of others. Doing things that are beneficial to other people. Not only good works, but good words. Good words. The kind of words that come from the fruit of our lips. Notice what Jesus says about, about the words that we say in Matthew 12, 33 and 34. Make a tree good and its fruit will be good. And make a tree bad and its fruit will be bad. For a tree is recognized by its fruit. He's speaking to his op- opponents here. You brood of vipers. How can you who are evil say anything good? For the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. And so are the words that are being produced from our lips increasingly wholesome fruit or are they increasingly rotten fruit? Not only good works and good words, but good character, good character. You may think of this, Galatians 5, you may be familiar with this passage. It's often referred to as the fruit of the Spirit. And when we abide in Jesus and his word abides in us, increasingly we have this kind of character. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. He says, and against such things there is no law. So we can use this as a bit of a spiritual checklist. If you want to know if Jesus is producing fruit in you because you're abiding in him, you can ask yourself, am I, am I, is my life characterized by love? Is my life characterized by joy? Is my life characterized by peace? And on and on and on. Number five, the fifth fruit that should be in our spiritual basket is simply the fruit of praise. Hebrews 13, 15 says this, Through Jesus, therefore, let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise. Notice what he calls it. The fruit of lips that openly confess his name. So if we are often saying, thank you, God, extolling him, speaking well of him, honoring him, it's a fruit of That should be in our basket. Number six, it gets a little harder now, financial generosity. Yes, financial generosity is a fruit that Jesus wants to produce in us. Notice Romans 15, 28. Paul calls the money given by Gentile churches to meet the needs of the mostly Jewish church in Jerusalem fruit. Notice what he says. Therefore, when I have finished this and have put my seal on this fruit of theirs... He speaks of their financial generosity. I will go on by you. I will go by the way of Spain to you. So, we have to ask, is giving financially to the local church and others in need a regular part of our spiritual fruit basket? Or is it not? Finally, evangelism. Evangelism, Romans 1.13. Paul tells the Romans, he is writing to them, and he says, listen, I want to come to you, and if I get a chance to come to you, I anticipate that there will be people who will come to know Jesus personally because of my ministry. And he calls those people 
fruit. In verse 13, I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that often I have planned to come to you and have been prevented uh, so far so that I may obtain some fruit among you, even as among the rest of the Gentiles. And so friends, brothers, and sisters in Christ, God has a garden. God has a glorious garden. And God the Father is the gardener. Jesus Christ is the vine. And we are the branches. And like all gardens, the point is productivity. The point is fruitfulness. God the Father is a good gardener. He's a good gardener. Unlike me, he expects and gets fruit from his garden. He has done everything for us to be productive. And he expects fruitfulness. And so we end with the question that we began. The question is this. Will we be fruitful? And how can we be fruitful? Jesus taught us this. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Let's pray. Father, my prayer is for both my own self and for the life of this church that we would be found (coughs) fruitful branches, that there would be none like Judas who simply profess faith and trust in Jesus, but in reality deny him and reject him. Father, may there not be one sitting here that is in that camp, that they profess, but there is no fruit in their life because they are not connected to the vine. They have no real relationship with Jesus. And friends, if you find yourself here today and you are in that position, then I invite you to cling to the vine, to come to the vine who is Jesus for eternal life, for forgiveness of sins, for eternal life, for reconciliation with the Father so that he may say to you, you are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. And if you are here today, may you cry out to Jesus right now, confessing that you are apart from him, confessing you can do nothing on your own, confessing that your sins have separated you from him, but that he in great grace has come into this world as a child, fully man, fully God, living a perfect life that you could never live but was necessary, dying a death in your place that you deserved, bearing the wrath of God that you deserved, your eternal punishment, and then rising to defeat death and Satan and sin, and that you come to him now in simple faith, receiving this gift of cleansing in eternal life. Father, for those of us here who have already been cleansed, may you prune us in whatever way necessary so that we might max out our fruit production for you. We pray in Christ's name and God's people said, amen. See you next week, guys.